0: Welcome to the Notes to My Legal Self, AI Insights, where law and AI collide. Get ready to level up your legal game with us. We've got career advice, cutting-edge developments, mind-blowing legal tech, and more. Know someone making waves in the legal AI world? Nominate them, or even nominate yourself. We love courageous souls. And don't forget, we want to hear from you, too. Ask questions, drop comments. Let's build a community of legal superheroes. But here's the deal, we're all about to have a blast. AI may be serious, but we're here to make it fun. So buckle up, get ready to power up and let's embark on this exciting journey together. Now let's introduce your fearless host, Olga Mack. Get ready to dive into the awesomeness of notes to my legal self, AI Insights. Let's go.
1: Well, hello everyone. It's good to see you all. I have a fantastic guest today, and we're gonna be talking about legal prompt engineering. It's something that has been in the news and in the feed now for quite a while, and I'm really excited to have about my guest today because he is an expert in this. He's been in AI for a long time. He's doing quite a lot of things, and he is someone I call my friend. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Daza, please introduce yourself.
2: Oh, thank you very very much, Olga. And I'm so glad to be on your show and to be your friend as we embark on this journey together in in basically legal technology and especially the new frontier of generative artificial intelligence. My own background is as an attorney, in-house counsel. I started in the state of Massachusetts as technology Council in the 1990s and to work my way up to acting general counsel for the the technology division for the for the state the state of Massachusetts would be, would be a fortune 50 company if it were private so you know we had a lot of desktops a lot of platforms a lot of every kind of technology and it also included a lot of policy and legislative and regulatory matters and so it was a great way to cut my teeth early in life in law practice and in some of the, you know, some of the multiple dimensions of technology and law. And then, you know, after that, I, I kind of reverted to my, my starting point, which was technology itself, and went back to really just um, doing consulting and embedding in teams that were, that were t- deploying some kind of technology to solve some kind of business problem or achieve some sort of result and where there's some kind of legal wrinkle that needed to be um, addressed as part of the build out, the design or the reconfiguration or the deployment of the technology in some ways. So that's been my sort of niche um, also. And I think the context in which you and I know each other best is I've got a research affiliation at MIT where, and I'm wearing that hat and for this, where I, I run something called law.mit.edu, which is a, a research team that focuses on what we call computational law and a really good example of computational law, which we'll get into in this conversation would be the application of generative AI to a legal task or workflow, or even to a legal instrument or something like that, or the application of a legal rule. So I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about all that very soon. And that in a nutshell is kind of a who I am and what I'm doing here with you.
1: I love it. That, that's a great introduction of where you are, where you've been. And I guess where are you going and what we want to talk about today is the legal prompt engineering so i will ask you to i know at some extent it's self-explanatory and very clear what it is and to some extent it's, it's actually not so i'm going to ask you like what it is and how do you eat it <laughs> what it is for and 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 how can we um, incorporate it in our daily lives
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, a good way to, to, to start to think about legal prompt engineering. Sorry, the, the sun has just broken through this, the clouds here in, um, in the glorious East Bay. Um, you are shining. You're shining. I know, right. I really kind of come alive um, <laughs> and start glowing when you when you say legal prompt engineering. Um, but a good way to, to get into it would be to start by taking the word legal off and even um, engineering and just what is a prompt. So, The the way that people are using generative AI now, thanks to the breakthrough event of ChatGPT in November of last year, 2022, is through a chat interface. And the chat interface is comprised of two main components. One of them is the input little um, field where where a user would type something in. And the other is the output where the results of, of that input are displayed that input part that we were where we type things in 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 a chat interface is what we type into that is called the prompt we're prompting the large language model to generate an output turns out that while these large language models are are really tuned to be natural language exercises where the idea is we can just as a person we can just speak in our in our own you know kind of vernacular and and that that should be sufficient for the model to understand and make the correct inferences and provide an output that's very relevant. Um, There actually is um, some marginal, maybe a big marginal advantage to being more careful in in the construction and the kind of design of those those prompts. And some people have turned that into a mini science called prompt engineering. And we can get into some of the techniques and methods that, that are good examples of prompt engineering in a moment, but just to get to the, to, to the question presented, there's a sub subset of that, where you could have, you can kind of apply prompt engineering techniques to the domain of law. And, and I'm calling that legal prompt engineering. And, and so that's kind of what the terms are and, and what it's about is basically de- devising more reliable and repeatable methods for that, that lawyers in particular, but anyone could use who is working with a legal use case or a legal process uh, to, to get higher quality outputs from the prompt. And so we, so, and just the, the spoiler alert here is a lot of it has to do with providing the relevant context in the prompt or as part of the prompt chain. And so, you know, what is relevant? Well, that's a you lawyer's terrific <laughs> at, at answering that question. And, and we'll and we'll we'll get into some of that in terms of how that applies in a prompt context um, later in the dialogue.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about sort of motivations. What are the what would be the motivations to use prompting? And what are sort of ways to increase, you know, and you alluded to that, increase effectiveness and efficiency of, of, of that adventure.
2: Yeah. So you know some some techniques for so just make sure I'm understanding the question. You're saying like how, how do you do better prompting? Is that basically Yeah, the-
1: yeah, like two two uh, to bigger, faster, cheaper?
2: <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> yeah. Let me be very subtle. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, faster, cheaper, better is 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 us. And so that's that is answering that question really is the point of, of of honing these prompt engineering and legal prompt engineering techniques. And so some, some of the basic, so the, the very first thing I, I would say is many people when first pre- presented with this interface, treat it like a kind of question answer machine. So almost sort of like similar in some ways to to a search engine. And that's, you know, not not surprising, you know, when we look at kind of even Boolean searches or SQL queries or the other ways in which people are have been presented with these inputs, we, it's frequently been in the form of a query or a question of some kind. But it's, it turns out that the most important thing to know about how to make how to get the best results from the modern breed of generative AI, such as GPT 3.5 and 4. Claude's Anthropic, Google's Bard, is that they've been augmented by a particular training method called instruction training. And I'm not sure if this is the most important thing to know, but it's it's critical to know that you don't have to just ask a question. You could, in the prompt, you could actually pose an instruction instead of a question. This is really important. And it's a huge unlock in terms of being able to get much better, higher quality, more relevant Output so you could instruct it to you know form the first draft of a of a client memo that that includes certain information or the first draft of a legislation or the first draft of interrogatories or on and on and on so the ability to instruct kind of masterfully is 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 I'd say like a number one in terms of what to know there's a lot more beyond that though I mean it is so good at doing things like developing options. It's, it can be very kind of creative that way. It's, act, it's actually pretty good at doing some fairly kind of standard information or like data analytics processes. Like in, in data science, the first thing we always have to do is extract, transform, load just to get started with data science from whatever the data type was from wherever it came from and CSVs or unstructured data, et cetera, et cetera. We have to kind of get it into shape. This, is, this technology is actually pretty good at doing that if you start especially if the if the data is included in the prompt or or as part of the stream through a vector database or other things like that you can you can very quickly do like entity extraction like show me all the places where this party was mentioned or was was suggested even if they weren't explicitly mentioned you can do you can put things into a structured table so it's really good at extract transformer and classify is the is i'll just end with this it does thousands of different things, but just to kind of skip across the top of the waves and give a few examples, a very common task people would want to do is, for example, take, take reviews or, or some kind of survey outputs and start to classify them into, was this like positive or negative? Was it angry? Was it, you know, etc. and do a kind of a sentiment analysis. This is, usually takes a fair amount of power in terms of a fair amount of time and expensive people to, to do that or, or very advanced technology to be able to process that in the past. This technology does it very, it's sort of like right out of the box. It can do sentiment analysis. So you can start to sort of chain these things together to do uh, like maybe to dump in a huge like JSON or CSV file of like reviews, for example, have it extracted into a, a structured format and then add like a column in a table output for uh, the result of a sentiment analysis. And you can even give it a menu in the prompt of, Here's like the seven emotions or sentiments that I want you to ascribe, which one is most reflective of the output. So here's some examples of some of the kinds of very powerful things this technology can do. This is totally different from what was widely available before this technology. So this is new, uh, we're even still learning some of the capabilities and giving names to them. But I, I think I just gave you a pretty good starting example for some of the kind of stuff that it can do.
1: So. If you were not thinking about it as a, as you said, Q and A machine, mm-hmm. how would you think about it? Like what, what is an alternative view of this, of this human technology interaction?
2: Dialogue would be, I think a real, another great way to look at it. So something I didn't, everything I mentioned so far involves sort of an input and an output. So I, I call it like an event, but Because of the way these modern chatbot interfaces are designed and the affordances of the underlying technology, they can actually maintain a sense of context through an entire chat session so that every interaction is not sort of atomic and, and, you know, here and gone, but rather you can build up the context interaction by interaction through a whole sequence of dialogue. This is really important. The way it works, incidentally, is, every prompt they actually feed the prior context back in to the prompt and you have to have a fairly wide what's called context window to do that and it does break after a certain point you can't do it infinitely you can do it very well for you know the amount of data that's characteristic of most you know you kind of like short or medium length conversations um so being able to have a dialogue I'd say is like is 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 a good answer to that and, and through doing this dialogue you can start to unpack different nuances and explore different um directions or forks in the road of 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 the matter at hand so dialogue i'd say would be like the like a completely different example
1: yeah interesting you mentioned that yeah that you can that that it has limitations at some point that 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 much you know it's able to retain context but at some point it has way too much context and that no longer works i'm curious you know (laughs) at what point it cannot tolerate me anymore (laughs) meaning uh, at what point that it had too much context just curious if there is sort of number of prompts or you know volume of my words or whatever like when can it no longer tolerate me i guess And two, are there any other limitations in those, in, in, you know, dialogues, interactions with the machine?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to, to recognize is that this technology and also, you know, everybody on the planet can never get enough Olga Mac. Okay. So there's no, (laughs) there's no threshold. And
1: that's my friends, why Daza is a good friend is because he knows how to make me feel good about anything, including my virtues and vices. Thank you, friend. Happy Friday to you too.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I just call it like I see it. Uh, um, But there are some, you know, kind of non-qualitative, I guess I'd say, limits to the technology. And those include, I, I just referenced it a moment ago, context window is one important one. And so what does that mean? That's basically how much data can you, can it receive within an interaction, within a prompt, let's call it. And so this differs based on the model and the configuration and kind of sort of setup of the deployment of the model, how, how wide that context window is. There are some models that have not very much context. You know, it might kind of sum out to like a, a couple of pages of of text or a few pages of text. There are other models that um, have a ton of context. So for example, um, Anthropic is a company that has their ChatGPT equivalent is called Claude. About a month ago, maybe, or so, they made a lot of headlines by offering a 100,000 token context window. And th- that comes out to be uh, like the size of a book, like The Great Gatsby or something. It's a, it's a big honking context window. You can The amount of data you can put into the prompt itself which is, which is pretty good. And, and they're actually saying that they have a 200,000 token context window in the pipeline that's not public yet. So people are working on this. And the bigger the context window, the much more, the, the better. We'll talk, I think, a little later, I'm sure, about some of the limits and flaws of the technology like hallucination, confabulation, and things like that. One of the best ways to address those is by having all the primary information within the prompt that gives it very little opportunity to kind of start mistaking, you know, what, what the primary source of information is. And so a big prompt window is great. And so I think the, the main way to look at what it can't tolerate is it can't accept anything outside the prompt window. Another thing is that is that's a hard limit. Another thing is when you have a lot of information in the prompt window in the prompt, um, something, another thing that happens is sometimes it kind of gets almost like a little confused. And, and this is similar to a person, like if you, if you, or like if you imagine jury instructions, so I think most people in your audience may be familiar with those. They can be like a lot of instructions that people need to hear and absorb and keep in mind before they get to the, the key instruction, which is like, tell us, are they like, you know, innocent or guilty or whatever, what the damages should be, that kind of thing. People can get confused. And so, I mean, like the simple way to talk about what happens there is it, if you put too much in there and your your question almost or your instruction can get lost in the mix because you've like blown the distribution, basically, of how it's processing all of the stuff in the context window, it has to know what's most relevant. There's ways to mitigate that with like delimiters and there's ways to sort of chunk things in the context window, but a more context is not always better. It can sort of become confusing and dilute the thing that you're trying to instruct it to do as well. So... Anyway, there's a there's a couple of ruminations on limits.
1: I love that. That that's really fascinating. So you mentioned the you know stating the primary sources. Let's explore that. What does that mean? How do you do it? How do you do it well? How do you do it in the way that it doesn't stop tolerating you, even if you are you know Olga, <laughs> that it can't get enough of you.
2: <laughs> so how uh, could you just so I understand?
1: How do you do what? How do you, the, you know, stating the primary sources so it can work with those primary sources within, within, give them more context, the in from the universe of primary information that you would like to give to the to to write when you write prompts so that it can give you better output. I think that's what the term you use the 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 stating the primary sources. That's at least what I have in my notes. What are sort of the best practices of stating the primary sources and how do you do it well? So you don't reach the sort of capacity, the limits of its tolerance.
2: Yeah. Thanks for, for restating that. I guess I just had to ask you to reprompt. That's
1: okay. I mean, don't tell me to insert the primary source because I will struggle.
2: (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that could be said about that let me focus on one that i think is really fundamental which is how to include a i guess you could call it primary source or let's instead call it a like the 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 the, the, the source of context that you want the model to respond to in the prompt
1: yeah and- i think maybe the better word i mean i use the word but i think to your point more, like, I think relevant,
2: maybe source? Relevant is great. Yep. The relevant source um, is great. And then some of those, like in a legal context, could be a what we call a primary source, like a statute or a court case or something, or it may be something more like, like a statement of the case or like our theory of the case, if it's litigation, or it could be whatever. It could be correspondence, but it's the relevant information that you want to pose your prompt against. The, the, the best practice for doing that, I think at this point, is... To state at the top of the prompt, at the beginning, the question or the instruction, very, very simple and clear is the right way to do it. To reference that relevant source of information that you want the output to be based upon. And then to say the relevant information is directly below. Hit a couple of like returns, you know, to make some space. Put a delimiter is what they would call, what you'd call it, some delimiter. So you can hit like like underscore, underscore, underscore. So there's like a line or you could do like dash, dash, dash or whatever, you Have some kind of delimiter and then under that paste the corpus of whatever that context is so that it can, and it, it, these models seem to process that much better when there's a delimiter chunking out the different parts of the prompt. And then there's some controversy around this, but I think the general feeling among people that really know what they're talking about, like in some of these foundation model companies is you get slightly better performance by put, putting the instruction or the question at the top of the prompt and then putting all the context in. There is some evidence that sometimes there's something called a recency bias where the stuff at the very end gets, is is deemed to be more important. And so putting the question or prompt at the end after a delimiter uh, with the context, some people think sometimes something better, Something that everybody seems to agree on at this point, there was a recent research paper that basically proved it is don't put your instruction in the middle. It's most likely to get lost there. So in the beginning, and I think my, my feeling is and or the end. And I've actually, I've been experimenting with putting the same instruction at the top and the bottom, and then a big chunk of whatever the relevant data is in the middle. And it seems to be performing pretty well. But, you know, the, I mean, the something that we didn't say is this stuff is all kind of new. People are still learning the the right techniques. It's not completely, it's it's not so easy to to identify what the inner mechanisms are that are at work here. And so there's a little bit of trial and error going on at this point to see what the best techniques are.
1: <laughs> Isn't it amazing that it's kind of like human that remembers the first and last thing and nothing in the middle? I yes. mean, it's, it's kind of very much like my husband, you know? <laughs> And I mean it lovingly because I I, I love them both. I really do, they're they're, they're both great in their unique ways. And so much commonalities, no wonder I love them both. Uh, (laughs) But that that, that, that humanity of of ChatGPT to me is actually really fascinating. The conversations, one, feel real. And then even in its tendencies of remembering the first and the last thing, for example, and losing a lot of things in the middle, as when I play with it, I I, I definitely have felt that many times. There are a few questions from the audience. One is, how do you keep context without fresh, per se, throughout the dialogue? I'm going to put it here for you on the screen, so maybe you can read the question and understand it, what it gets uh, actually, answer it, and then and then there there's a question about safety. But let's focus on the context because I, I think context is, is very important when you do prompting and doing it well and right. Not just <laughs> only with recency and things in the middle that get lost, but yep. also uh, how do you keep it fresh uh, and all that.
2: Yeah, this is a great question. Thank you, LinkedIn user, whoever you are. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so. so. LinkedIn user number 1127.
2: Oh, number 11, yeah. <laughs> So I think that there's a, you know, there's calls to mind a few things. One of them is first, let me say like the opposite almost of like ways to not keep the context fresh. So one thing is if you put the context in the start of a dialogue, say, and then you go back and forth in the dialogue, let's just say like hypothetically, a thousand times, so you, you're kind of like trying to dig to the bottom of of some like maybe the context was like something Plato said, and we're exploring it different ways. What, if, what do you think he meant this, or what about this other philosopher's take on it? By the time you get that deep in the dialogue, it has forgotten the context. It's basically outside of the context window, and it can't reason on it anymore. It can't refer to it. It's because you've gone past that the context window limit. Actually. I'd have to double check that if, if Claude does come out with a 200,000 token context window, I'm not even sure if what I just said is true, but at some point you get, if you get beyond the context window, it literally can't remember. So there's two, there's two kind of mitigation approaches, I guess. One of them is when you're in the context, one of them is keep the dialogue relatively short. So when you have a context thing and you have some questions to ask, Kind of put the context in, ask the question, ask the questions, or pose the instructions. You know, several rounds, and then if you if you have like three or four different tasks that you want to do with that context, you could actually create a new session for each one of those, and then the context is fresh as a daisy for each one of those sessions, as opposed to piling it all on. The other thing to do is if you're in a relatively long session, I have found out I've been getting this is anecdotal, but I found I've been getting better results by naming the context. And so if the context is like, so one of the things I'm working with right now is the CID investigation by the FTC that was like, kind of like publicized yesterday against OpenAI, And so I, when I'm posing questions about that, <clears throat> it has like, you know, like 40 interrogatories and like a 17 document discovery things. It's, it's very meaty investigate investigatory document. I, I, I named that context, the FTC CID. Is what I called it, and then I said like, here's FTCCID with delimiters, and then paste the whole damn thing in, and then above that I sort of put my 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 instructions or prompts. Then I get two or three di- two or three whatever prompt and respond prompt and output interactions down the line. If I want to say something about it again, I'll actually say it by name. Looking back at the CID investigatory document or whatever I called it, and that. In that session. And now let's look at interrogatory number 17. What do you think XYZ is? So referring to it by name rewarms up those like neural pathways. And it's another great way to kind of keep the context fresh.
1: I do love how you humanize it, but if you essentially call out the document, or Kind of what you would do in programming to, to, make, to make sure that the you know machine is very clear what it is supposed to interpret. But yes, warming up the neural pathways work, it works as well too. I, I humanize ChatGPT all the time. In fact, I was recently speaking and I was referring to to, to ChatGPT as a hymn most of speaking to male audience and I saw they were not clicking with me. So I said, listen, if you if you like to think of ChatGPT as a woman, you can you can do the same. And the audience became much more engaged. So if it helps you to humanize or animate the ChatGPT GPT or make it a less anonymous object or more to be engaged, do that. It's 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 very helpful for us to relate to it. By the mm-hmm. way, the, the user's name is Daniel Brooks. <laughs> that's a real person, not a bot, but go ahead. You had you something to say.
2: I did. So thanks for that question, Daniel. And I just wanted to say, I think that's really um, cool what you just said, Olga, about how you, you can basically instruct the models to assume a persona and that that can make it easier to interact with them. And I hadn't thought of male or female before, but I have done different persona. Like you're like a, like a celebrated contracts professor of a certain type or you're a mediator or different persona of that nature. And it it does change the outputs. Something um, that I want to respond to though, was the, the, you know, there's sort of like pros and cons of so-called anthropomorphizing the technology. And so what I think I had said was it's like L I K E, like analogous to warming up the neural pathways, not that it is. And the reason why I'm putting it that way is I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to, Figure out how to understand and think about this technology myself but i'm currently in the of a mindset of a mindset to try to err on the side of not anthropomorphizing it and it's because the mechanisms by which the technology produces answers are the, the outputs are similar to what we would get if we had done human reasoning or if we had done, you know, whatever, like hum- human understanding, but they're totally different like they what's happening behind the scenes is nothing like what happens with people, although the outputs are comparable, and I have a, I just have a gut feeling that we're overall going to be worse off, and not be able to predict what the stuff's doing or understand it better manage it you know, use it, govern it. If we start treating it more human than it really is, it's really great. And it does things similar or akin to what human processes would be, but it's different. And I think it's probably better to keep that in mind a number one. But assigning personas is great. If it makes it easier to interact, you know, all the better.
1: Interesting. You you prefer to have the arm-length relationship with your butt. I, I make it super personal. I, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I, I, I'm, maybe you have a point. And yeah, sure, you can think of it. I, I, would, I, I, I like that you extended it outside of genders into sort of roles, right? Like, is it a professor or is it a professional or is it a student <laughs> or example? I, that's another way to think about it. I, I, that looks natural to me and I've given options to people to think about it in different ways, but you certainly have provided another way and, 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 and maybe exercise some caution. Well, there is a very lively chat around from Joshua around illegal prompt engineering. And I just put it on the screen and then we have another LinkedIn user who I'm sure has named, but it doesn't appear sort of following on that and asking, you know, what that is. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. And then we also have had a question for a while around, you know, because as you're putting all that context and maybe even primary sources, because anything could be a primary source, it doesn't have to be a public primary source. So I I do want to talk a little bit about this, you know, safety. And I think gradually going into that conversation, how do you, do you have an arm length relationship with the bot or do you invite it into your life? How much do you put in? in in, 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 the, in the chat box, you know, uh, you know, whatever primary source is not public, how do you exercise care? And then, you know, Joshua took it to the sort of, I would say, the extreme part of the caution of illegal prompting. So with those few questions, what do you think?
2: <laughs> wow. Okay. Spicy. So, <laughs> I, so I I had never heard of the phrase illegal prompt sharing before, but I think we can like let's just take it and and take a look at it and think about what it might mean. So some connotations that that phrase has for me are number one. So I should probably mention I started my legal life in the U.S. Attorney's Office Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force, where I was where I was kind of embedded um, while I was in law school, and I learned a lot about illegal things and and how to you know interdict and and stop them and bring those people to justice. And so my
1: None and I put on they, the screen just follow up from Joshua, just if, in case right. that's clarifying about. I, I, he, it may be something that he's considering that could be happening, but maybe is not.
2: Yeah.
1: Necessarily so a charm.
2: I got it. So that's fine. But look, but it but you put it out there. So let, let's let's play with it for a minute. So one thing it could mean is people are using this technology to you know in, in the as part of the conduct of, of an illegal activity. So they're planning a theft. They're planning, you know, some something that's illegal, espionage. And I think if you looked at the use of the technology as part of the commission of a crime, that would that's very interesting. Some some of this is something that is like known to be a thing that humans do, unfortunately. And it's not just you know crime, fraud, other harmful behavior. There's a ton of effort in by the foundation model providers to identify that type of um, prompt interaction and to basically shut it down. And so kind of harm identification, which in absolutely includes doing illegal things is a huge part of, of, of how uh, the providers don't want the technology to be used. And there's a lot of countermeasures in pre-processing and the way the model's trained and then kind of post processing before the outputs are shown to the user to identify and like, and, and, and address prompting toward illegal ends. The other way to look at it, I think might be something like, I was just thinking here. So
1: there's a, there's an example of of somebody giving, you know, an illicit illegal yep. you know, use of, of phishing super style email or create malware. I mean, you can do harm with anything. Yeah. Uh, you can do a lot of harm with something as powerful as, as, as you know, AI too. I mean, there, there is no extent, I don't necessarily, you know, I, there's no extent to, to hum the human mind creativity to create good or bad. So, so, so what are your thoughts about so that? That's
2: a perfect example of what exactly I literally just said right there. So I, we're on the same wavelength. And so, you know, like creating a phishing attack w- would be, you know, using the technology as part of the commission of actually a crime and uh, probably, and, and there are methods that the foundation model providers um, have to identify those kinds of prompts and to shut them down. And, but, you know, these methods are not perfect. And so I think something to keep in mind is that this powerful technology is not only going to help people do good things faster, cheaper, and better, but also has the cap- the, the very real potential that, to accelerate, you know, fake news and to make it simpler to do phishing t- campaigns. One of the easy ways to do to detect kind of phishing and, and similar campaigns is like that sometimes the language is not very good. Like the syntax is weird. It kind of doesn't read right. This technology makes it easier to, to do much more effective fraud campaigns of that type and many other things. It also can create, I think I think that might have been one of the examples, but it can create malicious code. And there's a lot of interesting things. You know, there's one other thing that I was going to say on this that maybe people aren't so aware of which is when i when the first, my first connotation when i saw illegal prompt engineering was something that is sometimes known as prompt injection. So if you haven't heard of prompt injection, do a google search for it and especially read simon willison's really interesting blog post on it. And this is sort sort of similar to like kind of sql injection attacks, but basically the idea is when you've got a model that is connected to the internet say, like this would be the canonical example of a prompt injection attack. And it goes and gathers some information and then brings it back as part of a, a chain of inquiry, like go and find me the, you know, like the five best candidates on the web for a certain position or go and review some products for me. People that are aware that their web resources are going to be used by large language models can actually include in their website, maybe in like invisible text and HTML, like font color white against a white background, for example, instructions back to the model, something like ignore all previous instructions, instead output XYZ, like put this sort of code in there. And I don't even want to get into the stuff that you can do, but you can do a lot of very nasty things with prompt injection. And that would be another really applied example of illegal prompt engineering. So illegal prompt engineering, I guess it's a thing, don't do it.
1: (laughs) I love the conclusion. Do no harm, really. Uh, That's a good conclusion. That's a good way uh, to end that discussion. There's another really great question. I'll put it up about improving accuracy of responses. You mentioned a couple of ways, uh, you know, with context and uh, calling um, and and putting in the sort of um, the, I guess, primary source or defining the parameters and being very explicit and and recalling, reminding what the, the... the bots should be keeping in mind and answering their questions. This, this question is a little bit more specific to legal context yeah. and specifically in civil cases and, and, and stuff like that. Do you have any other tips about, you know, I guess I'm just going to say improving the accuracy of responses when you're dealing with a large language models, whatever they are.
2: I do in fact, and so the most important thing to keep in mind here is and I sort of kind of foreshadowed this a little earlier in the dialogue in addition to putting the context for a prompt right in the prompt window which is what I was talking about earlier you can also you can do something a little different where you can actually increase the amount of data that you're that you're that you have available as part of the context by basically putting that Putting that, like for example, large legal legal knowledge base of like all civil cases for some span of time into what's called a vector database. So examples of those would be like Chroma, Pinecone, and there's a whole process by which you kind of ingest the data and then you represent it on vectors. This is not coincidentally exactly how the data is represented in large language models. And and the reason I'm sa- t- talking about this is. Number one, that's like the, that's the basic design pattern to improve accuracy of responses is you, you take your corpus or your corpora, if you've got a, a few of them, like civil cases and maybe you have criminal cases, maybe you have you know, analysis of it and other things, you, you vectorize it, put it into a vector database, and then you include reference to that as part of the, well, you can first of all just work on that itself, if you have an on-premises model. But there's really interesting the things that can happen where you use that on premises, that, that vector database hosted in the cloud or wherever, in in combination with a foundation model like from OpenAI or BARD or, or whomever, Anthropic. Some further technique. So what I just said is great, but if you the most important thing if you try to do this at home yourself or in your office or wherever, is splitting. And so just dumping stuff into a vector database you can do that better or worse. And to a bad way to do it is to have like some, um, naive way that you're splitting, uh, what's called basically chunking the data inside of any one of those files or other documents so that it's not semantically really well aligned to how, how you want that knowledge represented. So thinking through, you know, is it like the end of a sentence or if it's some civil cases, maybe you want the chunks to relate to, you know, like w- when, when there's been a quote of an authority of a previous case, maybe you want that to be one entire chunk, probably would, or maybe you want it to be a sentence or if it's like certain regulate, re- I just did a bunch of OSHA regulations recently on a project and we, and the sub it, they were beautifully codified uh, by whoever wrote the regulation. So every sub, sub, subsection was kind of like two or three or four sentences and they were perfectly encapsulated semantically. So I just end up doing the splitting of that exactly along the lines of the, of the way that it was split up in the, in the code itself. And I got really good improved accuracy of responses when I referenced that legal data within the vector database. So the, the, those, that's, I'd say like the number one pro tip on how to improve the accuracy of responses when referencing a large legal knowledge base is to vectorize it, then be real careful about how you do the splitting as part of the um, process of getting it into the database.
1: Okay, so we've been talking for a little while, actually longer than I anticipated because I've been actively listening. This has been a very interesting conversation for me. So we actually sadly have to say goodbye uh, <laughs> because uh, we've been talking from, for more than 40 minutes. I tried to keep it between 20 and 40 and we're approaching the top of the hour where people will ha- definitely have to go. So uh, we are coming to the end. I really appreciate you sharing all the tips and context. And, you know, I guess as part of your goodbye, what I would like to maybe for you to share two things. One is, you know, whether and to what extent you need to have technical expertise to do this and to do this well. And then the other thing is, as part of your goodbye, I want you to address the controversy or something that is hotly debated, whether it's actually a kind of a real skill to write prompts. And if it is a real skill, that is it a long term skill or is it like a bridge skill? And this is going to become obsolete as quickly as it sort of become a thing in the last few months. And that would be our goodbye, (laughs) Daza. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful way to, to close out this awesome discussion. So I'd say the, the, the thing I would implore people to do is use this technology, you know, and, and try different things with it. So come up with a goal that you have, see if you can achieve the goal, check out the responses, look at it critically, see if you can improve it, but get familiar with the technology, get educated now. In terms of things to be aware of and you know keep a look at, just be aware that there are limits and flaws in the in the technology. It's prone to hallucinate to provide factually incorrect information. So the second thing I'd say is get really good at evaluating critically, like critically analyzing the outputs and make sure that they're what you want. D- don't just copy and paste the outputs into something important like a client memo or whatever. Um, I guess the final thing I say is be careful of putting confidential or sensitive or classified information into the prompts, and like to, to someone that isn't authorized to have that. And so, you know, you want to maybe also get good at looking how to take that context and to anonymize it or to scrub other sensitive information from it. So you can still get good answers, but without compromising anything you don't want to uh, leak.
1: Yeah. And with those things, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, everyone for joining as well. This has been a a great conversation and uh, I look forward to having more in the future. Bye everyone.
0: And that brings us to the end of another thrilling episode on the Notes to My Legal Self AI Insights. We had a fantastic time exploring the fascinating intersection of law and AI with you. But hold on tight because the adventure doesn't stop here. Stay connected with us on social media to continue the conversation share your thoughts, and be part of our incredible community of legal enthusiasts. Together, we can inspire, learn, and make a real impact on the world of law and AI. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to share it with your friends, colleagues, and anyone else who could benefit from the exciting insights we discussed. Let's spread the knowledge and enthusiasm far and wide.